This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. Institute fellow Damien Searles is one of our most celebrated translators. His recent project, the long-awaited translation of German writer Uwe Jonsson's 1,700-page novel, Jahrestage, appeared in monumental fashion in November. In this episode, Searles sits down to talk to us about translating Jonsson's masterpiece, which was published by New York Review Classics as Anniversaries. Damien, welcome. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. Uh, first, can you begin by giving a sense of who Uwe Janssen was? Uh, it's been said that there are few major German writers with as intimate a connection to New York uh, as Janssen, whose last name even looks English in print. Uh, what was his connection to the city? Well, so he started off as a wunderkind German writer. He published his first novel at age 26 in 1959 called Speculations About Jacob, or with the German pronunciation Jakob, same year as the Tidendrum. And he was really uh, revered starting with that. They started a big new international prize called the Publisher's Prize, and Beckett won the first year. Mm-hmm. And Uwe Janssen, as a 27-year-old, won the second year. Um, so that's sort of the fame he got quite young. He was known as sort of the voice of divided Germany because a lot of his works were about East and West Germany. He himself came from what would be East Germany, but he was born in 1934. So, of course, it was Hitler Germany, Nazi Germany, and then it was East Germany, and then he came to the West once he started publishing. So he certainly had a reputation as a German writer before he came to New York with his family in 1966 to live on the Upper West Side for two years. And out of that experience came his best novel, which is Anniversaries, which takes place in New York, and the main character is a woman, much like Uwe Janssen, who's a man, but the main character is a woman, a German woman living with her daughter on the Upper West Side. So much like his experience and much like the experience of so many people in New York, what this book is about is someone who is a New Yorker with a past. She has a history from somewhere else that doesn't disappear once she comes to New York, But at the same time, here she is as a New Yorker with the baggage she has thinking about that and living her life in New York, not detached from her history and her perspective as a European, in her case, someone who grew up under Nazi German rule. What did uh, what brought him to New York? Um, He was a fan. I mean, he had been to America before. Faulkner was his favorite writer. He actually took a pilgrimage in 1961 the last year Faulkner was alive, down to Roanoke and met the great man and never spoke about it afterwards because it was apparently pretty humiliating for him as this young kid to be like, oh, I love your work, Mr. Faulkner. And Mr. Faulkner was not that interested. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so he got a job putting together an anthology for English language students learning German And then the second year got a grant and was able to stay for two years. Um, So he loved New York. He just fell in love with New York. And the thing about anniversaries is that it's both 
this great novel of the German 20th century and history and the Cold War and um, the Vietnam War. And it's also this very loving, detailed New York novel where the characters describe the subways and take the Staten Island Ferry every week as a sort of family outing. And there's the sunsets over the Hudson from their Riverside Drive apartment and race relations in New York and history of New York and all of this stuff that these characters really dig into because they love New York so much. What was the uh, the, the milieu um, that he inhabited in New York? I mean, he, I, he knew a lot of people in, in New York who'd been either um, exiles from a previous generation of, of Germans and, and Europeans who, who came to New York. And then he also knew a fair number of other people. I think Susan Sontag was one person he was uh, friendly with as well on the Upper West Side. Well, as a famous writer, he was invited to give talks occasionally. He and Gunter Grass had come to New York in 65 um, to do stuff for the Goethe Institute. He knew Hannah Arendt, who lived a few blocks uptown on the Upper West Side. But he really did kind of immerse himself in New York life. He worked in Midtown. He rode the subways. And his daughter went to school. And he just was a New Yorker. So that's what I'd say his milieu was. But he was a very curious and engaged one. So while he was working on Anniversaries, which is this project he started near the end of his stay, he made sure to sort of try and get friends to introduce him to people in all sorts of walks of life so that he could talk to them and make the novel that much more realistic. So he had a friend introduce him to a bank president. He had a friend introduce him to this emigre from wherever on the Upper West Side. Just in general, he met a lot of Jewish German refugees and Holocaust survivors and things like that. And so he just had his antenna out all the time. When he went back to Germany, did he did he stay there? Was he was he then uh, established as a major European writer in Germany? I think he moved eventually to England. Am I correct? He had a fraught relationship with Germany, as you might expect. And even the fact that he moved to New York for two years kind of shows that he was someone who didn't like really living in the limelight of being a famous author in Berlin and in the center of these various controversies and things like that. So, Well, I'll just say that his relationship with the English and I think with New Yorkers reminds us, of course, of someone like Sebald, who also had a kind of interesting relationship with with English speakers and the English language. But we should probably uh, backpedal and just say a little bit about what this massive, monstrous project, um, what, what it looks like, what it is. What, yeah. you, how would you describe the, and I, I don't want to say the book because it's in, it's, I think, originally in four parts. Is that correct? Well, so you've said monstrous and formidable. One of the great things about it is that it has this structure that makes it very approachable. So what it is, is it's called anniversaries, which in German is the word Jahrestage, which also means a year of days or days of the year. And so it's a kind of pun in the German because the way the book is put together is every chapter is a day in order from August 20th, 1967 to August 20th, 1968. Um, so that means there's 367 chapters because there are two August 20ths. 1968 was a leap year. Mm -hmm. So 367, which adds up. But it also means that each chapter is this little four or five page absolute gem. And then you turn the page and it's another little twist of the kaleidoscope and you have another arrangement of the day. So people usually say that the book has three main layers. 
One is day-to-day life in New York, going to school, taking the subway. She commutes to her bank in Midtown where she has a job as a translator. They take the Staten Island Ferry. They explore New York, things like that. The other thing is that the mother, Gesina Crespal, who is a character from his earlier novels, in fact, she was the girlfriend of Jacob from Speculations About Jacob, who dies at the end of that book. So her daughter, Marie, in New York is Jacob's posthumous daughter. So Gazina's 34 years old, and her daughter's 10, and so she's getting to the point where she's ready to start telling her daughter about her past, and also in her own life is starting to process, you know, what it was like growing up, what it meant that she moved to America, that she grew up under socialism and is working for a bank, that the Vietnam War is going on, and yet here she is, all that kind of stuff. So... Aside from the New York layer, there's this Germany layer where you get the unbelievably great realist novel of small-town German life from the 20s to the 50s. And there's a a fictional small town called Jericho, so Jericho, where she grew up, and you get the whole story. Dozens of characters, the baker, the baron, the wife, the everybody. So, you know, one of these days might be mostly set in Germany in the 30s, and then you turn the page and you get a subway ride, and then you turn the page and you get back to Germany again. And then the third layer is that Gesina reads the New York Times every day. So most of the days kind of kick off from some New York Times articles. Some of the days are even put together entirely out of New York Times articles. And so it gives this amazing breadth and sort of historical cultural scope on top of the depth that you get by her looking back at her past. So, you know, there might be a report about a mugging or uh, a report about Senator Fulbright's hearings about the Gulf of Tonkin incident or President Johnson, which is this sort of quiet joke throughout the book because it's the same last name as Uva Johnson as Mm -hmm. pronounced in English. (laughs) Um, So Johnson deciding not to run. 1967 to 68 was a really big year. So you get the Vietnam escalation, you get the Martin Luther King and RFK assassinations. Uh, Very built into the plot of the book is Prague Spring, because Gesina's boss at the bank now has her to learn Czech and is grooming her to go back to Eastern Europe for this new emerging market. And she, who had fled the East with very good reason in the 50s, is now being lured into having hope again that maybe socialism with a human face will work out, maybe Prague Spring won't end in disaster, like so much of East German history had ended in disaster. And so she, having come to America, is now being groomed to go back to Eastern Europe. It turns out that August 20th, 1968, is the day that the tanks rolled in to crush Prague Spring. Uwe Janssen started the book on August 20th, 67, before he knew that. So he started it in late 67. And in fact, it was kind of a problem for him that this on-the-nose ending was where he had to end the book. Mm -hmm. You know, once August 20th, 1968 rolled around in history, you know, that had to be something that every reader was going to have in mind. But But of course, he's writing this without any anticipation that those events would occur. Well, so he he 
didn't finish it by then. I mean, he wasn't writing it exactly live. He kind of dreamed that he might be able to write a chapter a day and be done in a year, but it took him a bit longer than that. But still, he wrote it quite fast. The book does have a bit of a feel of being uh, a la prima, right? I mean, it does have a sense that you do have a sense in reading it that it's unfolding in some kind of real time. I mean, Yeah, and in fact, you know, that's really key to the experience of reading the book. For all of the bouncing back and forth between the 30s and the 60s, there's no moment where he breaks the frame and sort of admits that he knows the future past each day. So there are various news stories that you're following from day to day. You know, RFK being shot is one example that really hits Marie, the daughter, hard. But there are all sorts of various smaller stories that you sort of find out about as they unfold day to day, the same way Gazina finds out about it reading the newspaper. He never breaks the frame and and sort of winks to the reader that we know what's going to happen. And, you know, it's funny, when I first started translating this, I thought that the 60s layer felt so relevant because there's all this stuff about Republican governors not liking how the Democrats are handling the war and there's sort of racial violence and police beating up black people and are shooting black kids in the streets in Brooklyn. The race riots had just happened in 67 uh, when the book opens. And, you know, there's all sorts of really incredible little touch points where you can't believe this was 50 years ago. Um, One of the New York Times articles that gets brought up is John Sidney McCain III has been shot down over Hanoi and captured. Mm. And this is was just in the New York Times on October 28th, 1967. No one knew what was going to happen to John Sidney McCain III for the next 51 years, but there it is. So when I first started, I kind of thought that the 60s layer was so relevant. Then there was a time around 2016 where I started thinking, oh, the 30s layer and the rise of fascism is starting to feel pretty relevant to our lives today. What I now kind of think feels so of the moment in 2018 is this sort of media consumption. You know, she isn't on Twitter all the time, but she's the 1968 equivalent, which is reading the New York Times every day. And so here she is under this barrage of obviously world historical, difficult, tragic, confusing news. And she's a responsible person who understands history in East and West and is, you know, not apolitical. And she's trying to come to terms with it all. And at the same time, she's just trying to live her life and, like, spend weekends with her kid and just go about her business and be a normal human person. And yet she has to deal with this, you know, water cannon of world events that don't stop coming at her. And that really feels very 2018, at least to me. Yeah, sure. It certainly it certainly sounds like it. Did did Janssen ever did he ever talk about the fact that he decided to make the protagonist a a, a woman rather than a man? Um, I don't think he did about her gender per se. But one of the very moving things about him is no writer has ever been so committed to the reality of what he's talking about. One of the things he liked about Faulkner is that the same characters came back in all the different works. The Snopes and the Compsons and and everybody. Um, That was one of the things he got from Faulkner, and and he did that too. Gesina Crespal, the main character, is actually from his first novel, Speculations About Jacob, and so on. But it sort of goes beyond that. He 
published interviews with Marie, the daughter, in 1972, where she gets asked how she feels about having this trilogy in the middle of being published by Zorkamp. He describes, there's this amazing passage in his Frankfurt lectures, which in his case were kind of his autobiography, where he describes April 18th, 1967, it was a Tuesday, 5.30 p.m. on 42nd Street, between 5th and 6th, it was on the south side of the street, right by Bryant Park, when he ran into Gazina Crespal on the street, the character who's fictional, but he describes running into her on the street and saying, oh, what are you doing in New York? And sh- they talk a bit and he's like, huh, you know, I just finished my last novel. How would you feel about letting me have a year of your life, um, you know, letting me write about a year of your life uh, for my next novel? And so there's this, I mean, that's how real she was to him. And in a way, there's even a fourth layer in the novel because the novel is co-narrated by this Uwe Janssen character and by Gesine Kresspal. So Uwe Janssen occasionally shows up in the book. Um, there are occasionally arguments between Gesine and Uwe Janssen where she says, you're describing this wrong. You know, I could back out of this tomorrow. You better shape up, comrade writer, as she calls him. And so there's this kind of in the other direction, this very nurturing, sheltering, loving relationship that the writer has to his character, whose year he's using, but he's still going to respect her. Another thing that I found amazing when I read it is that he would give readings from the novel in progress during the 70s and occasionally just look up from the page and go from memory for minutes and minutes and minutes, getting it entirely correct. And, you know, this is not a really slick, facile, chatty book. It's very textured and layered, and the fact that he had it all in his head is really stunning. And a reporter or an interviewer asked him about this at one point, and he said, oh, you know that, well, mostly I do it in the dialogue passages. So, of course, you know, you just hear all that in your head. Which is not something most writers would say. The dialogue, too, is not like very obvious, slick, kitchen sink, you know. Oh, what do you do today? Oh, I don't know, hon. I mean, that's not what the dialogue is like. But for him, it was so real that like that's the stuff that came from other people that he just, you know, he just transcribed. It certainly is a book of a lifetime that really is not like other things. I mean, I read the book first almost 25 years ago, and it took me about a year. The German is not so easy, and it is quite long. And the thing is, you know, I grew up on Riverside Drive, three blocks away from the apartment. So, you know, the the playground where they go to the park all the time is the one that I went to every day as in middle school, you know. Is it at, closer to Morningside Heights, or is it more... What part of uh, the Upper West Side is it? It is 243 Riverside Drive, which <laughs> is on the corner of 96th, which is this overpass. So there's yeah. a sort of entrance, a bunch of floors up from the Riverside Drive side, and then there's the side entrance, a bunch of floors down by PS75 on the underpass. And, you know, the Upper West Side stuff in particular is so textured and so evocative. I mean, it really is, it's a bit different from my childhood. Uh, I wasn't around in 67 and 68, but I wasn't that far from it. So it really was my childhood. 
that there would be, you know, dozens and dozens of scenes about the park and the view of the Hudson and what Broadway was like and taking the subway and the newsstand and really the whole neighborhood. So it was a book that was very close to my heart for a very long time and then quite hard to pull together enough resources and commitment from enough people to be able to translate it. But I eventually did. I ended up, it it was sort of too long for a publisher like New York Review Books to be able to tackle the whole thing in terms of paying for it. But this is what I got a Guggenheim for and I got a Coleman Center Fellowship for. So I was able to make it happen. And I would sometimes say to people, well, on the one hand, it's a 2,000-page novel, but on the other hand, it's the slowest and hardest thing I've ever translated. (laughs) So there's just one hand. You're in the um, interesting position of translating a novel very much about, I mean, in addition, obviously, to being about Germany, it's very much about New York in 1967 and 68 uh, that was written for a German audience. Now you're translating this German novel about New York for an American readership. Are there aspects of the translation that are particularly thorny in that respect? Yeah, there's there are several issues that that question brings up. It's really fascinating to be translating New York into English. As a as a translator, you know, what people often talk about is that there's two approaches to translation. One is uh, sort of making it exotic and one is domesticating it. So if they're eating some special kind of stew that they have in Cuba and they don't have in white North America, what do you do? Do you give the Spanish name for it and expect some people to understand and some not? But even if you don't, you get this kind of frisson of foreignness. Or on the other hand, do you turn it into sort of meat paste or whatever your description of it is going to be and like make sure that no English language readers get disoriented or upset by encountering a foreign word? There's very politicized debates on both sides around all of this. And there's also very big philosophical questions about as a translator, what are you doing? Are you bringing something foreign to local readership, or are you bringing local readers into a foreign text and experience? So this really scrambles all of that because you're giving American English readers American English as seen by this foreign viewpoint. And not only that, it's all built into the novel because uh, Gazina and Marie have moved here six years ago. So Marie's lived in New York since she's four. And it's very explicitly dramatized in the book that Gazina speaks German still better than she speaks English, but Marie speaks English better than German. And Marie comes home from school with American racial prejudices that her mom criticizes. But at the same time, of course, her mom is describing what happened in Nazi Germany and the daughter can't understand that. So One of the other great things about the book is that it's a great immigration novel that really dramatizes these different stages of coming to a new culture and taking it on, falling in love with it, changing in order to adapt to it and sort of join it, but to different extents. You know, the mother who came in her 20s is never going to be as much of a New Yorker as the girl who came when she was four and can't imagine living anywhere else. So... It's not just that the book has this interesting German perspective on Englishness. It's that it contains that. It's it's about that. All these New York Times articles that get quoted are 
typically in the original, quote unquote, in the original, which is the original. So in the in the German, in the German they original, right. they're given in this often kind of playful or ironic translation from the English original that was actually in the newspaper. So I translating anniversaries into English as opposed to the Danish translator or the French translator or what have you have a different set of challenges because what do I do to convey the English-German loggerheads that's part of the plot of the book and also part of the language of the book? Aside from the times, there's some very kind of funny little passing moments. They mention the the mobile kiosk selling Heise Hunde, which means hot dogs, like dogs <laughs> that are hot, um, which is not what you would call sausages of that type in German. And of course, in English, you'd never talk about a mobile kiosk either. But like, it's this weird, foreignizing thing that it's harder to translate into English than into any other language, because how do you say hot dogs and have it not be hot dogs? Do you talk about like overheated puppies or do you just let it go and try and do it some other way? But again, the bigger issue there is that it's not just that the the book exemplifies this foreign perspective on New York. It's about New Yorkers who have foreign perspectives on New York. And that's one of the things about New York. That's what makes it make more sense as a New York novel than about some other city. I mean, New York is the city where, unlike everywhere else in the world where you can have lived here for 50 years and still be the new guy, New York, 15 minutes after you get out of JFK, you're a New Yorker. And yet you haven't erased what you've brought here from wherever you come from. I mean, that experience is really a lot of what the book's about. Well, I hope that everyone will purchase a copy and read and uh, find out uh, for themselves what a wonderful and and it's actually I think uh, I, I think a lot of us think we know the rough contours of what post-war literature looks like in a lot of countries. And no, th this is a very big country that that this work has been very uh, is, has been obscured. This is the white whale being sighted in the middle of the Pacific that no one knew was there. You know, although I should. I should say that that's not entirely true because there was an earlier very partial translation. So the earlier one that you may have seen is not the same as this one. And just in my personal experience, anyone I know who has tried to read the earlier one has not liked anniversaries very much. I mean, I never finished the earlier English translation, although, of course, I did as I was working on this one. Whereas people who read this book... People I meet who've read this book in German have read it three times and it's their favorite novel of all time. You know, it really just speaks to people, especially Germans who I meet in New York, of course, because it's about that particular cross-cultural immigration experience. But it really is beloved in German, not just as the book that, you know, professors know about, but no one ever actually reads. Like people actually do read it. This past year has been the 50th anniversary. Uh, August 20th, 2017 to 2018 was the 50th anniversary. And so there have been various cities where they have marathon readings or people doing the blog every week about my year with Gazina Crespal as they read each week of the novel and the corresponding week 50 years later, things like that. It is a real sort of living literary book that people connect to, not just this kind of 
idol up on a pedestal. Well, thank you very much. Look forward to reading the book and, uh, and congratulations on anniversaries. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org. 